Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. Mr. Miller, uh, for those of uh, us who don't know you, could you tell us a little bit about your experience and then how you ended up uh, at Cato? Uh, Started police work in January of 1976. And uh, pretty early on, having heard about SWAT, seen L.A. Sheriff's early SEB in progress under the command of John Coleman, um, that put the hook in me. And I wanted to be part of that. Eventually, because Downey did not have a SWAT team, I migrated down to Orange County and uh, landed first at Orange Police Department. And after a few years, moved on to Huntington Beach and found a home there and spent a good portion of my career there on SWAT, as well as uh, other great assignments that I was very fortunate to work. And you were also in the Marine Corps prior to that. Yep, three years, a little shy of three years. And uh, ancient history now, but 1966 to 1969. Which, if I understand my history correctly, was a very busy time for Marines. Uh, yeah. And where did you go? Um, well, I went to San Diego for boot camp, which scared the hell out of me, but developed me to some degree. And then from there, I uh, ended up uh, traveling to Vietnam, spent uh, a little less than 13 months there, and came home. Which is awesome, because a lot of people didn't get to go. So you started your career at, so you came back from Vietnam. You went to school first? Yeah, actually, when I was getting out of the Marines, LAPD was down at uh, El Toro, and they were um, recruiting pretty heavily. But in an incredibly rare moment of common sense, I uh, knew I was kind of screwed up and decided to instead uh, go to college rather than sign up with LAPD. So I got my degree, um, did a little bit of um, postgraduate work, was looking at going to law school, but uh, decided that that wasn't really for me. I'd had enough and wanted to do something with more of an active nature to it than being a lawyer. So I got hired at Downey. So what, let me ask you this here. Uh, over the course of your career, you've had a various amount of assignments. And I heard, I heard a great story about you being stuck with a lieutenant um, with no prior SWAT experience. And as the stories relate to me by that particular lieutenant, uh, he, uh, to his credit, knew he didn't know anything and, and leaned upon uh, you to kind of get them up to speed. But that, uh, while the, would appear to be a rare story, is actually not. And in my experience throughout the state, is not uncommon for SWAT sergeants to be tasked with training a new, uh, unexperienced or inexperienced uh, SWAT lieutenant. Is that pretty, did he tell the story correctly? Well, I'd like to know who you're, unindicted co-conspirator is, but uh, yeah, uh, a couple of times I, along with the rest of the team and the other team leader, we had lieutenants come on board that were um, inexperienced, uh, uninformed, 
and lacking in uh, some common tactical knowledge, to put it politely. And uh, we had to try to balance out uh, educating them and also protecting the team from their decisions that might be very um, threatening to the officers if they weren't well thought out in a tactical sense. And uh, after that initial exposure to that kind of situation, sometime uh, later I found John Coleman's book, The Trials and Tribulations of a SWAT Commander, which uh, parallels my experience and really talks about uh, a tenured SWAT team leader, supervisor, having to try to help with a uh, team commander who comes on board primarily for political rather than common sense reasons. Now, R.K., from a leadership standpoint, as a team leader, as a tactical supervisor in that type of a situation, how do you handle that? This is something that you faced early on in your career that, like Marcus touched on, is still something that is seen quite frequently throughout the state. Um, Maybe it's uh, in certain organizations, it's um, to uh, prepare this, this, manager for other positions and it's almost like checking a box of of having command of a SWAT team so they can move on to a different position Uh, for the people who are listening who might be operators or team leaders or tactical supervisors what kind of advice can you give them in a situation like that to lead to lead through that type of situation well first of all it you know there's a temptation to let them sink or swim but that's not my style and I would, I really mean this. I, I enjoy helping fellow officers regardless of rank or position. So for me, it was uh, just another aspect of doing my job at a higher level rather than with a new operator, for example. And so helping a, a new lieutenant, team commander, try to develop his skills was just something that was the right thing to do. Just like, for example, a sergeant gets appointed to a SWAT team, no prior experience. That might cause heartache within a less mature team. But uh, I know it's happened a number of times, just like the examples you brought up, Marcus. And from there, the right thing is to try to help that person succeed. That's kind of always my goal when I teach or do anything. I'm here to help them succeed. It's good. Kind of one of the books that we've talked about reading in the past, Extreme Ownership, one of the things they talk about is leading up the chain and that being a, a principle there. And that's, uh, we commonly talk about you know, leading down the chain and how you influence the people that, uh, that are your subordinates. But um, it's a really interesting principle about being able to, to lead back up the chain and be able to help the, your supervisors because as they succeed, uh, the department succeeds, the profession succeeds, ultimately the citizens we're serving in these tactical situations succeed. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. Now that sounds, uh, I, I agree. And that's what we should do. But let me ask you this in your experience, sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't because it's a shared responsibility between you as the subordinate and, and the superior. And, uh, have you had one of those, um, examples or experiences where the, your superior would come in with less training or experience in you and was not open to uh, your, your experience and those kind of making it even more challenging. Um, no, you know, I've been pretty blessed in the tactical SWAT 
context in uh, patrol. I did experience some of that conflict with a lieutenant watch commander that was um, more oriented towards statistics and other things as opposed to the real things that were going on out on the street. But uh, again, I was very blessed in the folks I worked with within the SWAT team environment that I experienced over my years and uh, frankly still do to the day. Um, I'm a reserve at Orange PD. I just spent all day yesterday with their SWAT team out on the range. And for me to have an opportunity to work with those folks and continue to try to help make a difference is a real honor for me, something that I enjoy doing. And some of my contemporaries think I'm absolutely nuts, 5150 to the max. But it's, again, something that I've liked doing ever since I started this. And probably I'll continue doing it until I'm not vertical anymore and they shove me in the ground. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a bad goal. Let's, uh, if it's okay with you, I know I skipped around on you a little bit, but let's talk about um, you're in SWAT and how did you hear about, how did you hear about Cato? How did it come about? Um, it was kind of evolutionary. I joined uh, NTOA first because at the time, that, thanks to John Coleman, God bless him, um, that was the organization everybody was looking to. And then um, Ken Hubbs had the vision to start uh, Cato as a regional California type of organization. So I jumped on board pretty quick after that was formed. And what did that look like when you, because it was pretty, you were in early on on that, correct? Uh, yeah, it was in its infancy, literally. Um, a lot of credit to Ken for what he did to build it to give it that uh, original genesis to get going. And uh, for example, you were just looking at an old copy of the Cato News. It uh, has progressed so much from those original uh, days to where now we're much better off as far as quality content, everything. But at the time, it was basically a one-man show. And do you recall the, the first training that Cato provided? Uh, yes, it was um, a debrief by Ken and another guy on a couple of high-profile tactical incidents. One was the uh, hostage rescue of um, a hijacked airplane in France. They had gone out and developed information, much like the uh, Cato uh, team doing the after-action investigations now. And so that was another thing where I learned things, the lessons learned from that uh, operation that uh, made me a little bit better. And I wanted to continue to pursue that. Excellent. Everybody likes debriefs and, and uh, it's a great way for us to gain experience without, I guess, basically having the pain of the mistakes that were made. Uh, and, and, you know, for most of our teams throughout the state, we're collateral teams. Uh, we don't have the op tempo of maybe some of those bigger cities. Uh, I can't imagine uh, in my lifetime having a hostage situation with a plane in my town. But that doesn't mean there aren't principles there to learn from and apply in a, in a variety of different terrain problems. So uh, debriefs are always great. It's it's kind of interesting over the years you you meet Ken and some of the plank holders that started Cato. And I always picture it kind of like this uh, 
group of Mad Hatters in her garage, you know, mm-hmm. kind of telling stories and going, hey, we need to tell other people about this so they learn this is what the bad guys are doing. And and that's kind of how I pictured Cato beginning and then just evolving uh, into what it is now, a network of guys and gals throughout the state um, sharing information. And then, you know, I think about all the training uh, that we provide. I've had an opportunity to be involved in uh, team leader and commander courses recently and have seen uh, folks from the East Coast, from Canada, from all over the world come to our training just to kind of see what we're doing. Now, I'll say that with a caveat, and that caveat is a lot of times they they come with, hey, my boss sent me here because if it's going to get screwed up or bad guys are going to do it, it's going to be in California or New York. And so they pick California. But we do. We have a lot of uh, incidents. We have a lot of good training in our state. And uh, for someone who's only been a police officer in California, I'm very thankful for the amount of training that we do get. Because a lot of folks are doing it on their own with their own money uh, just to get the kind of training that I get just for being part of my organization. I think that's um, that's very true here in California. A lot of uh, our folks don't realize how blessed they are in the training that they uh, are getting or have, for example, uh, available through Cato. I've done a lot of traveling throughout the country teaching as well as outside it. And the level of um, training and expertise that's available to cops, especially SWAT cops outside of California, is pretty hit and miss at times. So, uh, again, I think it's um, a testament to what Cato's done especially and will continue to do as far as the training where California is above the level of most states throughout the union. Where do you see, uh, you've been involved in, in training, not just with Cato, but with Post and in a variety of formats for, for a long time. Where do you see those challenges right now? I know you and I have talked in the past that we've both been involved in the, the Post Committee for uh, updating uh, the SWAT recommendations. Where do, where do you see those challenges in our field? Well, some of it's... Um, uh, same news, different day, where it's always going to be a question of uh, the training budget and specifically the training budget for SWAT as opposed to the department. Um, But it's kind of a case of you get what you pay for. And if you don't have a team that meets those SWAT guidelines, for example, those core competencies, then in a number of ways that will come back perhaps someday to bite you. And it's the... um, the constant theme that some people would rather pay later and suffer the consequences, which I think is very short-sighted. Um, obviously, I'm biased towards tactical teams and uh, supporting them. I realize that the uh, bigger picture is to support the entire department and the community. But um, that one critical moment where if you don't have a well-trained SWAT team, capable of at least stabilizing a situation, if not carrying it to resolution, then you could have invested money that could have uh, conceivably made that take place rather than uh, looking at the aftermath and it failed. The, uh, the training dollar, always a concern. 
The uh, technology is amazing that's continuing to evolve for tactical teams. But the sidebar to that is that there's so many things that are outside the original scope of SWAT work, tactical work, that there has to be sufficient training time for the team to be proficient. I mean, ARVs, drones, uh, uh, laser designators on weapons, everything that's um, so advanced from what I first experienced in my early days that um, the teams really have to have that opportunity to train at least twice a month as per the NTOA guidelines. So that's another factor in addition to the training budget. Now, you and Brent recently had uh, an opportunity to deal with uh, an evaluation of a team where some events took place that uh, caused their chief to kind of stand the team down briefly to, to kind of revamp some stuff. And without getting into details, and, and again, my point here isn't uh, to point fingers at any one particular team, but more along these are lessons uh, that we all should learn and how quickly uh, some of the things we do can ultimately result in losing our team uh, for good. And sometimes as operators, especially, we lose sight of that. Uh, because, you know, they won't let us do this. They won't let us do that. As a sergeant and I promoted, I kind of could see it from a little bit different perspective and, and kind of saw those liabilities and tried to mitigate them. And then as a lieutenant, you see them from even a higher, you know, point of view. Um, but really, uh, the problems are, it doesn't really matter what time we're talking about. Uh, in, in your experience, and Brent, you were kind of involved in this too. And sometimes it's just those little things that if you allow them to not get better, you could ultimately lose your, your, your agency could lose your ability to have a SWAT team. Is that, is that a fair statement, Brett? Yeah, I definitely don't have the, the depth of experience that RK does from uh, um, his standpoint on, on civil trials and evaluating teams. But yeah, 100% think that there's certain things that, that we see that go unaddressed that become a part of the culture of a team. And it starts to shape the decisions that are made that I think ultimately lead to, to issues for our organization. And, and one thing that, um, that I, I'm, I'm curious of, RK, is there a certain thing that you see um, or any kind of a common theme that you see amongst teams um, that leads them to, to trouble in civil situations or Anything that you can point back to and say, hey, it doesn't matter whether we're talking Central California, Southern California, Northern California, across the country. These are the type of challenges that commonly uh, stump tactical teams or come back to bite them. Well, you know, you can break it down into uh, the way we work, the tactics, the firearms, the entries and everything. But that's kind of secondary to the issues of leadership and good decision making. And uh, this is probably something you've heard from Tim and other folks. But just to reiterate, um, when you look at the leadership of a team and the decision making that flows from that, uh, that level down to the team members, it's uh, pretty critical for how the team will develop from there. And quite honestly, when I was a team leader, I made some bad decisions and I carry them with me to this day. But the good thing is that I try to share those with folks 
like through the team leader class when I was doing that, so that they don't repeat the same errors I made. The, um, the critical thing, again, I think is that leadership and decision-making. I think uh, sometimes about the first team leader I had, great guy named Pete Hewitt, and as things would get more tense, he would get more calm and be that uh, stabilizing presence through his leadership, as well as the way he would direct us with that decision-making approach. Um, sound decision-making is something that uh, in my old age I value when I look at somebody and how they uh, take on tactical work. And that's continued to be a, um, a level of uh, respect that I have for anybody that uh, operates at that level of sound decision-making. Now, how can Cato help to develop that for people that are sitting here listening, going, yeah, we all agree. Uh, good decision-making is what we want as it relates to tactics and how we, how we do that. Uh, but what does that actually look like? How can Cato help support that? Well, I think Cato is already doing that, <clears throat> not to uh, gratuitously advertise for the team leader and the team commander courses, but uh, that's one of the, I think leadership and decision-making are two of the major themes in both those programs in that uh, people come to those classes looking for a model of what a good team leader or team commander can be. And the uh, folks that uh, teach those programs that share their information or experiences, like um, Brian Tidrick, who I suspect is the unindicted co-conspirator as far as you're sharing information about my past, um, that's, that's a great resource for those folks uh, that are in need of it. Unfortunately, there's so many of them from my experience and getting into those classes is sometimes difficult because it's in such high demand, but they are there. And if people are persistent in trying to get into them, usually my experience is they do and they come out of it uh, better in whatever role they will play. But also they come out uh, better mentors, I hope in that they can take what they learn, not only use it internally for their benefit, but for the team and develop folks to step into their shoes somewhere down the road. It's, it's a current contemporary issue, not just in, in law enforcement, but when, you know, leadership, legislators, city councils, but posts, they all talk about, decision-making? How do we train and measure good decision-makers? And it's not an easy task. Uh, the team leader class and commander classes are great. Uh, we talk a lot. Uh, every time we go to a keto conference, we go to other tactical conferences. Everyone wants to hear debriefs. And uh, I think debriefs are great because they tell a story. They allow me to get experience without uh, having to live through that. Mm -hmm. But they're only as good as the takeaways and how you apply them. And so I would argue, Brent, that a lot of the things we do improve our decision making. The, the books we read, the uh, debriefs we read, the scenarios we run on our SWAT training days, the tabletops, the discussions we have with each other on how we would solve this particular tactical problem. All those are part of building your training and your experience and the principles which then evolve into your strategies 
and then your tactics. And I would say there's a lot of things we do that improve that, but they're very hard to measure. Yeah, it's it's difficult to to quantify uh, these type of things, and we can only quantify them whenever things go wrong. Um, and we can look at that and then try to work it backwards and figure out, um, you know, and identify what it is that went wrong. And, and when things go right, you know, one of the things that uh, you hear Odie say a lot is not confusing good luck and good tactics. But I think that's something that we see quite frequently throughout tactical teams is, hey, it went well, it came out, they gave up, ah, everything's fine. When maybe it really wasn't fine and we just ended up fortunate. So you're right. It's a, it's a product of all these different things um, that we do that, that, uh, that make us better. And as many resources as, as we can get our hands on to, to try to be proactive in, in, in looking for these things and, and taking care of them. And, and that's what Cato has been for me um, for years from a team with a slower operational tempo to be able to have um, resources, uh, papers to read, websites to go to, um, you know, mentors to talk to, classes to take, conferences to attend, being able to take little bits and pieces from all of those um, different sources and try to figure out how to apply them in, in my own life. And, uh, you know, RK's played a big role in that for me. And so it's, it's a pleasure to get to talk to you today. Okay. My ego is inflated suitably. Thank you. So, hey, Arcades, uh, to transition from that, what, what were, I mean, you have had a great deal uh, of success and opportunity uh, in the tactical community particularly, but what, what were some of those keys to, to your success? Um, well, success, sometimes I kind of balk at using that word. Uh, I'm just very fortunate, but when you when I look back on what I've um, experienced or what's uh, helped me develop in this role with uh, tactical teams, uh, there's a number of things. One was um, I really wanted to be a student of my profession, and I still to this day kind of fancy myself as a uh, SWAT historian. Uh, a week ago, I was sitting with Ron McCarthy, who was a mentor that I hold really dear, high respect for. And uh, he started talking about the SLA shootout, which is ancient history, but I hope all SWAT cops in California know that because it was such a significant event. So learning from people that were there is always the best uh, process as far as what went right and more importantly, what went wrong. Um, add to that John Coleman, Mike Hillman, Sid Hale, those kind of folks who have um, set the stage for where we're headed now by their leadership, their decision-making. Back in the day when we didn't have the technology, we didn't know there were other tactics necessarily that could make it safer, but they still got it done and they did it with uh, an innate sense of um, their mission, their responsibility to their troops, which to me is huge and uh, also to the department and the community. So I guess if you want to use that word success, I, I attribute it more so to um, guys like that who were kind enough to share their knowledge with me. Mike Hillman kind of took me under his wing a couple of times. And for the lieutenant in charge of D platoon to treat a young SWAT cop like me uh, the way he did, that was huge. It lasts to this day, and um, the opportunity to succeed as well. I mean, 
you come to a SWAT team with kind of an open slate quite often. And it uh, from there depends on what kind of uh, commitment you bring to the team, your fellow SWAT operators, and doing the job right. I've seen people that have done a lot better than me, and I've also seen people that, quite frankly, become slugs, and they should not be on the team. You know, one of the things you touched on is briefly is as you talk about where we've come from and where we're going. As a person who's been involved in uh, law enforcement for over 40 years and still to this day. Ouch, that hurt. <laughs> I meant that in the most respectful way. And still to this day as a reserve officer for uh, you know, the, the Orange Police Department working with their tactical team, where do you see uh, tactical operations uh, and tactical operators going? Um, specifically in the state of California over the next few years? Yeah, we're in an evolutionary stage, I think. Um, some of it's going to be legislated upon us. I, I'm pretty convinced that sooner or later, SWAT teams will all be mandated to wear body-worn cameras. Uh, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. It, um, however, is something that some people are resistive to. I get that, but the reality is we're going to have to accept that and go with it. So with that, it um, is an opportunity, I think, also to evaluate how we do in an operation with a uh, pretty close to real-time perspective of what each individual officer's uh, decision-making and actions are in that uh, particular operation. And so I see that as a plus coming down the line for us that um, we can go back and look at, did we go left instead of right? Why that was a good decision? Why you challenge someone instead of um, going from 3.5 to 4 pounds of trigger pressure? Those kinds of issues that uh, you, can, you can simulate in a force-on-force um, -force scenario, but when it comes to really recording it in an uh, uh, actual tactical operation, that's something that would be extremely beneficial down the road. And I hope teams will take that and uh, use it as training for the next SWAT operators coming onto their team rather than just archiving it and not doing anything with it. That answer your question? Because I think I got kind of on a roll here. No, it's, it's, it's good. I, I agree. And it's just always nice to hear the perspective like said, from somebody who's seen the evolution of SWAT to see where exactly they think the uh, the next couple steps are for those of us who are, are still, you know, in the profession. And and I would say, uh, in my brief career, the average line police officer is getting better training on tactics. And uh, in, in, I've seen the evolution of training a line level officer tactics really uh, advance in my brief career where we're teaching uh, things to line level officers that before would have only been taught for SWAT. I agree. Just in the last several years, we've seen such an improvement in those type of things that it, this was, you know, SWAT gets, you know, two extra training days a year and patrol is, is not going to be active in, in actively involved at all, but we're seeing with active shooter events and all sorts of different things that are coming that obviously patrol is going to be the first ones that are going to be dealing with these problems. So I think agencies are wise in investing more tactical training in their patrol officers in that initial response. And that if things are handled correctly within the first few minutes, 
of a patrol response that it might uh, take away the need for a full tactical response or provide for a better tactical uh, response and, and ultimate uh, resolution later on in the problem. So I think we're seeing agencies that are going towards helmets. Obviously, patrol rifles have been around for a while, but um, uh, plates and plate carriers and, and things for, for patrol officers. And I hope that's something, a, a trend that will continue. I think that's something that Cato is looking at as well as expanding what type of tactical um, training can be provided for, uh, for, for patrol officers. You know, that, I think that's a, a very relevant issue for SWAT cops. We try to emphasize it in the SWAT Academy in that uh, when they leave the SWAT Academy, we're telling them, whatever you take from this training, take it back to patrol, not just insular to the team, but take it out to the streets, share it with the patrol cops you work with. Uh, one of the sayings I really like to share is that uh, SWAT gets an invitation to the party, but for patrol, it's come as you are. And so the more that SWAT cops can do to share with their, their uh, fellow officers on their squads out on the streets, the better the chances for them to be successful in dealing with very challenging situations that are often life-threatening. And uh, a good SWAT cop that does that is really not only helping his fellow officer, but quite probably mentoring somebody else that may come on the team at a future date. Hey, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, uh, Ron McCarthy and uh, some kind of knowing some SWAT history and uh, what you brought that up and reminded me of that book that Ron co-authored significant tactical police cases. And uh, we actually assigned that uh, sitting right here on our case shelf. And we actually assigned that in team leader school um, to go over these cases and we just do it real quick. And the real goal of that is, Hey, let's not forget our history and the, the problems if you examine them from the, the eye of terrain and uh, what the tactical problem was, and you take away the year, uh, the problems still happen. Yes. And, uh, that's a great book. Um, it's a quick read. It's just a, literally a book of significant tactical police cases. Uh, Ron McCarthy was a co-author in, in that, and they debrief uh, several key incidences in our uh, SWAT history and really uh, was the birth of some of the tactics that we use to this day was because we came up against a bad guy that did some stuff that had never done before in the history of law enforcement, and we were forced to adapt our tactics to deal with that problem. Yeah, I mean, there's things in there. There's uh, Texas Tower. You touched on the uh, SLA um, shootout. There's just a, a lot of things that relate very well to the things that we see today. Couldn't agree more. RK, before I ask you uh, what's, if there's any one thing you wish you could have done in your career um, or you would have done differently, I'd like to get your expert opinion on Brent's slipper shoes. Well, um, they look a little frayed, just like Brent does, but I'm <laughs> sure they're I'm sure they're still uh, fulfilling their mission. Um, since you've uh, taken this interview into a new and uncharted realm, I might also point out that uh, you, sir, are wearing psychedelic socks that uh, are somewhat. Um, 
Are they giving you flashbacks? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so these are uh, these are monster socks that my daughter gave me. Um, they're stances for those of you who are uh, fashionably inclined, and I'm not talking to Brent. Brent is. Uh, this episode is brought to us by Sinooks. Brent's wearing a nice pair of Sinooks, by the way, which I enjoy. Oh, comfortable, um, quite comfortable. I just don't want to know what kind of chonies your daughter gave you because I fear they may be similar to the socks. They match the monster underwear, but, you know, this is a kid's program. Not so much. Um, but I like how he saved you from that because the one the one takeaway I got from RK's uh, quick analysis and his expert opinion was that why those shoes are not new, they have a lot of mileage, just like yourself. Wow, wow that's deep. Old and beat up. Man. Old and beat up, man. You were the shoes. Both. <laughs> Both and they both look like they're about to give up. No, no, no. Those, those are, might give up. This guy's might give up. Those are great. So uh, I was in an investigative assignment once, and I wore those. And my boss told me those don't count because those are slippers. And actually, I I showed him the website. They're defined as shoes. Um, there you go. And uh, I actually wore them to court one day. <laughs> I so, had I had a uh, captain that I worked for that was straight out of GQ. And he wanted us to wear a shirt and ties in the administrative assignment I was in. So I went to the swap meet and found the most outrageous ties I could, including, for example, dogs playing poker and things like that. And I'll never forget the look on his on his face when I showed up wearing that tie because he knew I was right within his parameters, but I had temporarily won that's right yeah finally the spirit of uh, what he was looking for i think he might have won the battle you did not win the war yeah well sometimes you gotta do it sometimes you have to do it to remind him. very true uh is there anything in your career that uh, you wish you had had an opportunity to do or you would have done differently oh hell yes i mean you know i look back on uh decisions i made um as a team leader things that i think now and the perspective of everything i've learned since that I could have done better. Uh, I always tried to watch out for the guys, but uh, a couple of times I think in retrospect, I didn't really pay as close attention and uh, that's with me. So when I think about those things where I realize now I could have done a better job, it's uh, part of what I try to share with folks. For example, now in that, um, Again, be a student of your profession. Don't give up on trying to learn how to do it better. And especially if you're in a leadership position with uh, those decision-making responsibilities at critical times, one of the things that uh, I share constantly that I learned from Randy Watt was uh, something to the effect of uh, we will only risk our subordinates' lives in a calculated manner and only when necessary. And you look at uh, some of the debriefs, the lessons learned from situations that went south on us collectively, where good folks are no longer with us because of poor decision-making. That's, um, that's a message that I really am passionate about as far as sharing not only with uh, SWAT officers and SWAT command, but also with uh, folks in patrol whatever rank they may be. Um, yesterday, I had the privilege of working with the SWAT team, and then the day before, I did uh, critical incident management training for sergeants and lieutenants at Orange PD. 
and uh, getting that message across to especially the young new sergeants so that they understand how how important it is to balance the mission versus the risk to their folks is um, critical these days in police work. You know, it's an interesting challenge that uh, unless you're in police work, it's very hard to understand. People, you know, it's funny being a police officer or deputy in, in law enforcement. People watch it on TV, so then everyone tells you what to do and how to do your job. Yeah. And it's one of those professions. But the real trick in law enforcement is I get, uh, as I progress in my career and my age is we do so many things so many times that they become uh, mundane and regular. And you don't have an opportunity to spool up and get ready to have uh, two weeks dry runs before you go into combat. Uh, it's going to be a mundane, normal, run-of-the-mill SWAT call, barricade, search warrant, car stop, and you've done it a hundred times. And then the one day it goes badly. And, and sometimes it's based upon the decisions you make. And like Brent said, uh, we've often attributed all that volume of experience to good tactics. And sometimes they were, and sometimes they were good luck. And the key is being that student and learning, you know what? I just got lucky. Mm-hmm. That was luck mm-hmm. and it's okay. But you got to recognize it. Yes. Brent has his philosophical face on right now. Is that what it is? <laughs> no, it's, it is, a, as you're talking about it, I'm, I'm thinking about things in, in my own life and decisions that have been made. And, and I'm really appreciative of the quote that you just said, RK, that you attributed to, uh, to Randy Watt, because I think it's very easy to, uh, get excited about um, a SWAT call out and going to work and being aggressive and handling the situation, but also handing, having that balance of, of balancing the mission with uh, the risk. And it's a sliding scale. It's going to be a moving target. It's going to look different uh, for different people. It's going to look different at different agencies based on uh, philosophy. It's going to be different based on the nature of the crime. And I think that is one of the hardest things for tactical commanders for incident commanders to really grasp and get a hold of. Um, and I, I don't really know how to, how to teach that. Cause again, it's going to be uh, different all the way across the board, but that's, uh, when you said that it meant a lot to me. Yeah. Well, thanks. Um, I think in any leadership position these days in law enforcement, not just, um, tactical work, um, you basically have to be a risk manager, and some people don't recognize that responsibility attaches to their position. Yeah, I mean, isn't that the the trick to and and even not being cute with the words is pretty obvious, but to not get lost in the fact that you're managing risk, you're mitigating risk, you're not eliminating it. We're never going to be able to. You know, the only way to avoid being sued or any of these things is just to not show up, and that's yeah. not an option. So I think the goal becomes then that when we do get sued and when we are called on the carpet, that we're able to articulate our decision making, what we did, why we did it, that it was reasonable, that it's consistent with our training, that it's consistent with the best practices. And that's, again, another area where I see uh, Cato being a a major force within our industry. Absolutely. RK, uh, what book would you recommend to inspiring tactical leaders? Wow. Wow. 
Well, John Coleman's is kind of a default. It's an easy read. Uh, you mentioned Ron McCarthy's book. Um, uh, just to add to it, I know you were in the singular, but I've got to um, recognize some books that have influenced me. Um, Sid Hale's books, you can't go wrong reading those. And uh, sometimes I like to get outside the realm of police work. I like uh, Malcolm Gladwell, uh, especially his book Outliers and also Blink because it talks about making decisions within the blink of an eye, to use a phrase. So those are some of the ones that uh, I would recommend. There's a bunch of them out there. You, met, you mentioned Extreme Ownership. Uh, that's a good read. Uh, William McRaven's book on uh, tactical uh, military tactical events is another good one. Uh, McRaven's got tons of uh, credentials behind his name. So there is um, a lot of them to choose from. But um, equal to that are the publications. And obviously the Cato News is a big one because uh, instead of investing time you may not have in reading a book, you can still go to the magazine, the Cato Magazine, and sometimes pick up some pretty good information there. In addition to if you have more time to invest in those books. And what are you reading right now? Yeah, I've got um, two or three books right now. Uh, one's by Tony Long, who's a retired London Metropolitan SWAT officer. And uh, his story is uh, outside the realm of what I thought in that uh, they have a pretty uh, tuned up aggressive um, SWAT element there where I think everybody pretty, pretty much across the board assumes that most London cops are not armed. And so his story is unique in that context. Um, another one called Touching Heaven, which is interesting. And then from there, I'm also reading a World War II book. Is, uh, that's something I'm really into. You definitely know your World War II history. Yeah. Which is good. Brent, what are you reading right now? Uh, you know, I wish I'd say I have uh, um, one book, but I've got three or four that's, uh, <laughs> that I'm reading. Um, you talked about uh, Sid's book. Um, I read it and then I try to digest it and, uh, and read it again, but Sound Doctrine. Uh, something that I'm reading, I'm reading um, Going Pro by uh, Tony oh, Kern. Good choice. Um, right now, uh, you know, I am, uh, you gave me a book by uh, Jack Enter that I'm really good book. still trying to, uh, to get through, but um, I really like to just focus on, on one, but reading that and then right now i'm taking a public budgeting course in the master's program and i've been reading that and i that's I, riveting yeah i don't recommend you reading through that riveting. textbook <laughs> but that's taken up a lot of my time over the last three or four months is this uh this this public budgeting book it's not quite as exciting as uh, the ones you're talking about i just finished uh rocket men uh which is the story of apollo 8 okay cool which was a uh a great book with the kind of inside insider's view on Apollo 8, which kind of set up for the success uh, for Apollo 13. And so kind of how that all worked out and how it played in their lives. And interesting, just a little different kind of read for me. RK, you've, uh, you've taught a lot of us uh, 
over the years and you still do. And uh, any any words of wisdom on uh, someone just coming into the tactical community? Uh, you know, look at look at those classes that you're still still teaching with basic SWAT cops or any words of wisdom? Uh, well, we've come full circle. Be a student of your profession. Never stop learning. I mean, every time I get with a group of cops and teach or sit in a class, I learn things. And so it's not as relevant for me as it once was, but certainly for somebody that's starting off, the more you can do to prepare yourself and learn from others, find those mentors like I was very fortunate to do, the better your chances for success. And we're not just talking career success, but we're also talking at that critical moment when you have to make some uh, pretty heavy decisions in a tactical operation. Okay, what drives you? What drives you to still be at the Orange Police Department, to still be so heavily involved with Cato, um, with uh, your training company? Why? Every day. You've earned uh, the right to sit out on the deck, watch the uh, uh, the great view, and uh, and just relax with your, your wife and your dog. Why, why get up every day and, uh, and come out and, and work with a bunch of knuckle dragon SWAT cops? Um, because I like it. You know, I like the opportunity to work with good folks and help them succeed, going back to another theme. So for me, it's uh, just a lifelong commitment where I can remember when I first started, um, I helped develop some training programs on building searches at Downey back in the 70s. And it's just been this continuous uh, process for me. And I suspect uh, I'll probably still be training. I'll probably be dead, but my mouth will still be flapping or I'll still be saying, hey, you should go left instead of right, <laughs> something like that for at least 30 minutes, just because it's uh, what's inside me. And it uh, is rewarding. And not everybody chooses this path when they retire. Some people go and play golf, which I think is a waste of a good shooting range. But uh, <laughs> it's what's right for me. And yeah, I know that uh, some of my peers think I'm absolutely nuts. There's some justification to that. But uh, again, it's what I like. Well, it's a pleasure having you. And I'm glad that I'm glad that you feel so driven. I'm glad that you're around. We're better for it. Well, thank you. We all are. And uh, putting us to shame for being the first up and the last to bed and taking care of business. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catonews.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catonews.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.